the FT. Hello, and welcome to the best of the Financial Times, all of this week's most interesting talking heads on a single audio platter. On this episode, we'll be hearing why Britain's government is going too far on internet surveillance, what's happening with the Keystone Pipeline and global climate change negotiations, and what makes Angus Deaton, the latest winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics, sceptical of foreign aid. I'm Henry Mance, and this is actually the last episode of Best of the FT Podcast. But fear not, at the end of this show, we'll be directing you towards our favourite FT podcast, which will take up the slack. First, did Edward Snowden act in vain? This week, the British government unveiled plans for more internet surveillance, clarifying the legal position of the security services after Mr Snowden's revelations. I'm joined by James Blitz, an FT leader writer, to discuss the moves. James, what's wrong with this proposed legislation? Well, there's a lot that's right with it. Let's be clear about that. The basic situation is this. After the Snowden revelations happened, a lot of people got very concerned that Britain's spy agencies, in particular GCHQ, were able to snoop on what lots of people were doing without any underlying legal framework. And so what this has come out and done is put in place a number of things which are good, such as when a minister decides that GCHQ or MI5 or MI6, all of the foreign and domestic intelligence services in the UK, go out and do some spying or intercept somebody's communications, not only must they get a warrant from the minister, they must also get a warrant from a judge. So that's a good thing. There is, however, one bad thing, or at least one thing that we're critical of, which is that the legislation does seem to give powers to the police in the UK to look through the browsing history of members of the public without much of a warrant. And we're worried about that. Looking at the impact that, that, say, Edward Snowden's revelations have had in retrospect, there doesn't seem to be a huge public outcry about this. I mean, we know people in the House of Lords are very upset. We know privacy groups are upset. But do you sense that the mood has changed around that, around browsing history that you mentioned? No, I don't think it has. And Janan Ganesh, our columnist this week, wrote a strong column saying, actually, the British are not interested at all in these issues of surveillance. They're actually interested in the economy and all the rest of it, and civil liberty campaigners are just not listened to. Now, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think there was a poll this week saying that something like 65% of people basically trust the government in this area. That said, I think if the government comes along with legislation that says that the internet companies are going to store an important element of your browsing history for 12 months, and the police, who have not got a great reputation in this country, are going to have very easy access to that, given that people's browsing history can tell them these days an awful lot about them as people, I think that's going to be a bit worrying. Now, the work of the security service is very much in the news uh, this week with the crash of a Russian passenger jet over Egypt. What does that say or what light does that shed on, on the need for the security services to have more powers at this time? Well, it's interesting. I mean, that obviously came at the moment that this bill was published. So in that sense, it's slightly buttress the argument that the government is making about the need for strong security services, although that was already there. I mean, there are a fair number of people, about 3,000, who are deemed to be inside this country potential attack planners who have strongly extremist Islamist views. The crash of the Russian jet, which left Sharm el-Sheikh over the Sinai Peninsula, obviously is an area where David Cameron was very heavily involved because they came up with all this. They, They suddenly acquired all this intelligence, which they haven't told us about, which suggests that this wasn't actually an accident, but actually that there was some kind of bomb put on board, or likely to have been. And and it shows how difficult it is to have a debate, really, around security when he's relying on evidence, which he can't obviously put in the public domain in full. And we're having a debate about whether we need the powers which may have enabled that, or we need further powers that would enable further surveillance to be carried out. Yes, I think the key point is this. 
when you've got a situation like this where people have died in a horrible terrorist incident, I think a government is reluctant to put out in the public domain the intelligence it has and has a legitimate case for not putting that out because that could help terrorists on the ground. However, there is a, perhaps a different situation where if you then, for example, imagine a situation where the British government or another government took proactive steps to, say, invade a country or carry out some action, as we had in the Iraq war, then, of course, the question of hiding intelligence and not showing your hand becomes a much more contentious one. So in this particular case, I think the government is justified in not showing what it has, though over time, I think it will be under more pressure to say exactly why it's taken the view that British planes should not be flying from Sharm el-Sheikh at the moment. James, thanks very much. Now, Angus Deaton is a Scottish-born professor who has recently turned 70, and he also won the Nobel Prize for Economics. He spoke to Cardiff Garcia of the FT Alpha Chat podcast. First question, how has Deaton reacted to the attention that comes with winning a Nobel Prize? Mostly with enormous pleasure, actually. It's, really? Um, yeah, it's really nice to have an opportunity to talk to people I wouldn't have otherwise met. And I'm sure as anyone who ever gets an award like this will tell you, you hear from people you haven't heard from in 40 or 50 years. Right. And that's a real treat too. And those are the ones, those are the emails I'm answering. Some of Deaton's most high-profile work was about the so-called poverty trap. Other academics had argued that poor people were unable to work productively because they lacked the money to buy the calories they needed. Deaton and his colleagues were sceptical. The key point for us was that... Um, you could buy, and it's in one of the papers, so I may get this number wrong, so is that you could buy enough calories to get by in a day for about 5% of a day wage, even in the poorest parts of rural India. So it was just totally implausible that people were trapped in that trap. Deaton now sees a very different relationship between calories and poverty. It's very complicated, and in more recent work, I mean, there's this paradox, which they actually didn't cite in the prize, so maybe you want to not talk about this, okay. is that, you know, there's been all this very rapid growth in India, but calorie per capita consumption is going down, even though half of all children in India are, are malnourished. And for us, that's, you know, one of the, that's the sort of paradox I love. I mean, it's tremendously important because here's all this economic growth going on. Here are all these kids. They're not starving, but they're not getting enough to eat, and they're not growing as fast as they should. And they're probably, brains are probably not developing. And, you know, I mean, India may have to be taking over the world already, but wait until all these kids get properly nourished, um, you know, will really release their brain power. And so this seemed like a first order question, and, and it was not at all clear to us. And it's still, I mean, we have it's some. It's still unclear. It's why still that, unclear why that's, why that's happening. But I suspect part of it is that a lot of what people eat is really fuel for hard manual labor right. um, rather than for enjoyment in some sense. So in a country where there is growth, as in India, People are doing much less backbreaking work than once was the case. Another line of Deaton's research is whether the billions that rich countries dedicate to foreign aid actually benefits those in poor countries. I think a lot of foreign aid is there for us rather than for them. And if they don't want it, that wouldn't stop us from doing it. And if we discovered it was hurting them, it wouldn't stop us from doing it either. But it would still not stop us from doing it. It would not stop right. us from doing it because we think something has to be done and somehow we know best. Um, and I find that very, very troubling. I also find it very troubling that there's just this huge income differential. I mean, it's all from rich people doing things to poor people. 
sort of idea, and poor people are not really being fully consulted. Mm. And is if, as I've argued, that giving very large sums of money to governments who are already getting very large shares of their budgets from foreign sources, it actually does worse because it undermines the agencies of the, the agency of the citizens of these countries um, because it makes their government less responsive to them. Cardiff Garcia asked Eaton about one fashionable idea in aid circles, giving cash directly to poor people. There is a kind of flourishing research going on right now about unconditional cash transfers, yeah. things that target people in those countries directly. In other words, the money right. doesn't go through the government. Um, it seems to have pretty positive effects so far. Uh, do you want to talk about why you're, you yourself are a bit skeptical? I haven't done the work to go through those in detail, but I could tell you what I'd be looking for. Um, the, 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 the effects, the positive effects I've seen are essentially first-round effects, you know, which is if you give money to people, the people are better off. And, you know, th that's a little trivial, and a lot of them do better than that. But imagine what would happen if you gave very large sums of money to ordinary people in a country that's being run by a dictator. It's all going to finish up in the pockets of the dictator in the end. And as far as I can see, none of these studies even consider that possibility. Just to add that Deaton does not think that all aid is bad or that it should be stopped. And I'd really recommend listening to the full interview on the FT Alpha Chat podcast where he talks, among other things, about how he nearly dropped out of university after not enjoying a maths course. The Keystone Pipeline is one of the biggest issues for North America's oil industry and a bane of environmentalists. The pipeline would connect Canada's tar sands, seen as the source of some of the world's dirtiest fossil fuels, with US consumers. Here's an introduction from Ed Crooks, our US energy editor. It's an oil pipeline essentially to export Canadian oil into the US, uh, into refineries where it can be processed, turned into gasoline, jet fuel, everything else that, uh, that people use from oil. And it is particularly important to the Canadian industry because uh, essentially the sort of the pipeline capacity that they've got at the moment is not quite full, but it's kind of nearly full. Because the pipeline crosses the border into the US, it requires presidential approval, and that hasn't been forthcoming under Barack Obama. Now TransCanada, which is proposing to build the pipeline, has said it needs 7 to 12 more months for an investigation into the route the pipeline should take through Nebraska. Why does that matter? So you count up 7 to 12 months from now, the election is 12 months from now, uh, the uh, new president, whoever it is, will be inaugurated in the following January. So if the State Department does indeed do what TransCanada wants and delay a decision, that means that either President Obama might just rush through a decision in his very last months in office, which is possible, but given he's shown no great signs of rushing until now, it's quite unlikely, or it would become a decision for the next president. If the next president is Hillary Clinton, the pipeline will probably not receive approval. And the US presidential race could have other big consequences for the country's environmental policy. Over to Dmitry Sevastopolo, our Washington bureau chief. The big difference will be that if a Republican like, for example, Ted Cruz or Donald Trump became president, it's highly likely that they would on day one just roll back and nullify the executive orders that President Obama has used to curb emissions. And that would have a big impact. Whereas if Hillary Clinton came in, it's highly unlikely that she would do that. She would leave those in place and then whatever she did herself, she would pursue by her own methods. But it would have a big impact if it was a Republican or a Democrat in the White House. At the same time, the next president will also shape the world's approach to climate change, an issue on which the Obama White House has triggered some diplomatic progress. Here's Polita Clark, our environment correspondent. 
if the US, if the Obama administration had taken a back seat for these talks, it's very difficult to see that they would have made any sort of progress, really. And, you know, if we hadn't seen the sort of effort that the White House and particularly the State Department under John Kerry, who, of course, has for many years been a very strong proponent of more action on climate change, if this hadn't happened, I really don't think that we would have gotten to the point now where conceivably we will see the first new global climate change agreement forged in four weeks' time, in first new one in 18 years. That's a reference to the Paris Climate Change Conference, which starts at the end of this month, against a backdrop of some muted diplomatic optimism. However, even if the world's countries do reach an agreement, there's a question over whether the next US president could undermine an accord. One final footnote, Republican policy is supported by oil and gas companies such as ExxonMobil. What a surprise, say some. But in Europe, oil and gas companies have been rather more constructive on climate change policy. Here's Polita Clark again. It would be another thing entirely if ExxonMobil and Chevron had joined up. And of course, in the EU, we've seen a number of big oil and gas companies come out and say that they support the goals of the Paris Agreement and they would like to see more work being done on things like a global carbon pricing framework, something I might add that was never envisaged for this agreement will um, almost certainly not happen in our lifetimes. But anyway, there's a very different approach being taken on both sides of the Atlantic when it comes to these oil and gas companies. That's all from us. We won't be back next week, but please do keep listening to FT Podcasts, including World Weekly out every Wednesday, Alpha Chat out every Friday, and a whole range of FT News podcasts that are published throughout the week. All our shows are available at ft.com slash podcasts. And please do continue to send in comments and suggestions to audio at ft.com. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts. And you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.